1: Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Ahmed al a PhD candidate at Princeton University. And today with us is Professor Rashad Chaudhry, an Assistant Professor of History at Oberlin College. And we have his brand new book, just co-published by Cambridge University Press, Hajj Across Empires, Pilgrimage and Political Culture After the Mughals between 1739 to 1857. Welcome, Rishad, to new books in the Indian Ocean world, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk about the book.
0: Thanks very much for having
1: me, Ahmed. Thank you. Thank you. So Hajj Across Empires presents a new history of imperial connections across the Indian Ocean from 1739 to 1857, which is a very crucial period that witnessed the decline and collapse of Mughal rule and the consolidation of British colonialism in South Asia. But before delving into the book, uh, we would like to learn about the authors. So can you please start us off by saying a few words about yourself, that is where you grew up, where you went to school, and how you became interested in your field of study?
0: Sure. Um, so I'm I'm from Bangladesh. I was born and raised there. I was born and raised in the capital city of Bangladesh in Dhaka. And uh, I guess, like, you know, many others, I sort of drifted or accidentally fell into the study of South Asian history. Um, you know, uh, from a very young age, I knew I wanted to be a writer of some sort. Uh, uh, and... And as an undergraduate at Oberlin College, uh, which is also where I teach now, um, I even very seriously considered getting a major in English literature But I very soon realized that I wasn't especially gifted at literary study and uh, and as you may or may not know, Ahmed, in the highly gendered economy of the human sciences in South Asia, uh, the study of literature was also seen as something of a kind of think something that, you know, women specialized in, you know, and thankfully, of course, this is now changing. Uh, So at any rate, so more or less by chance, I ended up taking a history class with uh, 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 Michael Fisher, who's a historian of South Asia and my predecessor as professor at Oberlin. And that's where the bug bit me, as it were. Um, I then eventually ended up at Cornell University as a Ph.D. student, where I worked closely with uh, scholars of South Asia and British colonial rule there specifically, uh, like uh, Durba Ghosh and Robert Travers. And I worked as well uh, with um, the historian of the Indian Ocean and in Southeast Asia, um, Eric Tagliacozzo, and that's where this uh, work on the Hajj uh, uh, from the from from the Indian subcontinent where it began to take shape in the form of a dissertation. Yeah.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Um, mm-hmm. Before delving into the themes of the book, I would like first to ask about the research process. How did archival materials? And historical documents guide your research towards the hedge as a pivotal axis of exchange.
0: So uh, thanks for the question, Amit. Uh, so you know, archives really are at the center of, you know, are you know are at the center of the book in the sense that you know this book draws on you know archival materials and manuscript unpublished materials um, from a variety of locations, right? My principal sites of research were archives in uh in um the in Istanbul, Delhi, and London specifically, right? So the ex-imperial capitals of the three empires that are at the heart of this of this book, namely the Mughals, the Ottomans, and the British. Uh, but really actually, you know, if I can kind of you know step back a little bit and give you a sense of you know the kind of provenance or provenance or origins of the book, right? Um that might actually give you a sense of where I actually how I actually kind of, you know, dreamt up the project, as it were, because as it happened, you know, I I didn't actually, you know, it wasn't uh, precisely through archival research that I kind of, you know, came at the question of writing or came at the, uh, you know, uh, came to the decision of to write about the Hajj, but rather through a kind of, you know, through a kind of um, field research, as it were. So you see what happened was, you know, initially, I had thought that I wanted to write a kind of history of Inter-imperial connections uh it, you know across the Indian Ocean between South Asia and the Middle East, right? And specific specifically, I wanted to kind of bring together um uh the Ottoman world somehow with um the Indian subcontinent. Um and you know, so you know I was conducting research in the archives in Istanbul, trying to kind of you know uh, parse through all sorts of connections, any kind of links that I could find between. Uh, India and the Middle East. Um, and you know, what what happened was, you know, as it happened, a friend of mine who was at the time at the archives, my friend who's also a historian of the Ottoman Empire, Nida Nida Nal chachi what she did was, you know, she she suggested that we go on a, something of a kind of field trip to uh these uh Indian Sufi lodges in uh in Istanbul, right? Uh I was quite surprised to hear that such a thing even st- Existed, uh, but at any rate, so we ended up kind of going to these Sufi lodges, which are, you know, abandoned now. They're kind of, you know, they're really, uh, uh, they're kind of really archaeological sites, for the lack of a better word. These are these kind of, you know, very old sixteenth, seventeenth, and eighteenth century sites, right? Uh, the two of them in Istanbul, and 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 there are actually others that sprawled across the Ottoman Middle East. And, um, and that's when I realized that, you know, there's something interesting here, right? So, you know, uh, that the fact that there are these Sufi lodges all the way out in Istanbul and that these Sufi lodges actually, then I came to find out, right, back in the archives that these Sufi lodges actually actively hosted Indian uh, pilgrims, Um a, 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 in the 18th and 19th and, uh, in in the 18th and 19th centuries that's when i really began to begin to kind of ponder that okay uh, maybe i should write about uh pilgrimage right and how it how pilgrimage acted as a kind of specific kind of axis of exchange between uh um these two parts of the world so yes archives were kind of have been central to the study uh but really you know the you know my orientation Right in the archives, and in terms of what I wanted to kind of discover and research and study in the archives, that was actually kind of you know, instigated by this rather accidental visit to um to this kind of derelict abandoned Sufi lodge in in Istanbul. um and that's actually that actually eventually kind of um became a kind of one of the chapters of the book as well. Right. And I can talk about it, of course, uh, at greater length, should you like, yes, yes.
1: That's, that's amazing, uh, the whole uh, fieldwork in Istanbul, looking at these lodges. Um, and as you've mentioned, the book uh, draws on uh, many, let's say, uh, sort of sources ranging from the imperial to the colonial, to the administrative archive, to the first-person account of the hajj. Uh, and I would like to ask you, um, what challenges did you encounter while examining um, these different genres and sources? Uh, particularly those related to the hajj pilgrimage from diverse regions, as you've mentioned, and how did you bring them all together, navigating all these complexities uh, for, you know, to write a, a cohesive narrative uh, about the hajj? Uh, and I'm asking this as a grad student, so I'm really sure. by that, yeah.
0: Sure. Um, um, so, I mean, so you know, I think, I guess, I, I would say I faced two major sets of challenges, right? And I think they can be parsed as... Um, practical on the one hand and theoretical or methodological on the other, right? Um, I guess, you know, the practical challenges are the kind of near universal channel challenges that I think all students of history, uh, especially, you know, students of the history of South Asia and the Middle East might face when working in the archives, right? So just to give you an example, you know, archives in India are infamously ill catalogued, right? And in fact, many of the indices and catalogs and finding guides of archives in India are you know, themselves worthy of being archived, you know, because they were actually assembled during British colonial rule, right? So this means that you really have to kind of rely on human intelligence, right? To find your way around sources and materials. Um, so just to give you an example you know of you know how I was helped or you know how many many senior scholars uh guided me through my research while I was trying to kind of you know find my way or kind of grope towards the projects grope toward a project while working in the in the archives you know in in London for instance you know um you know uh, 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 professor Peter Marshall, who is a distinguished historian of the British Empire right he did he helped me quite a bit in terms of kind of finding sources that were relevant to the Indian Ocean, right? Um, uh, especially when it came to the British archives. Uh, and uh, whereas, for example, in 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 Bombay or Mumbai, the Maharashtra State Archives, um, I was uh, helped a great deal by um, the Indian Ocean historian Chaya Goswami, as that archive is really her kind of main hunting ground right um so you know other kind of practical challenges included issues of paleography for instance you know uh, you know this book my you know this book relies uh, to a great deal on kind of manuscript sources in indo persian and ottoman turkish and a lot of these sources are written in this kind of you know uh, 18th and 19th century scribal chicken scratch as it were right um and aside and and and, and this is on top of the fact that you know the languages themselves are often very uh, you know the the the, the persian and uh, turkish that are employed in these texts are often very kind of archaic and distant right um So, you know, so it took me a while to kind of uh, train my eye, as it were, on how to simply be be able to read some of these scribal scripts and uh, let alone decipher them, right? Um, So, you know, and in terms of, I guess, theoretical or methodological challenges, you know, the main problem I faced was, uh, you know, as you kind of, I mean, I I think you kind of, uh, you know, put your finger on it already, uh, but, you know, each of these archives obviously is Constituted quite differently, right? Uh, So, you know, scholars of the Mughal Empire, for example, tend primarily to privilege narrative sources, right? You know, chronicles, prose texts, you know, and the like. Um, Whereas administrative and state archives get far richer and more complex um, for the british and ottoman empires and bringing them together and analyzing them in tandem was therefore something of a challenge um, but you know um and but i've tried my best in this book to, to try to kind of read them against one another right um uh just to give you one example you know one of the chapters of the book chapter 6 um you know is actually uh in uh It concerns a a pilgrimage that was undertaken by this Nawab, or regional provincial post-Mughal ruler in southern India. Uh, and what I found was, you know, there was a kind of Indo-Persian narrative source, right, that was uh, specifically commissioned by the Nawabi court, right, to chronicle the, the, the this ruler's pilgrimage. But then what I also found was, because this was, you know, this, this kingdom was by this point kind of beholden to the colonial state, uh, there was also a kind of rich paper trail in the British archives as to how the Nawab actually went about performing this pilgrimage, right? So what I found was that, you know, if you read these two sources against one another, as it were, if you kind of were to juxtapose them, very interesting kind of and very different forms of different kinds of details emerged, right? So for example, you know, the Indo-Persian source was written in this this kind of, you know, rather kind of expectedly very kind of exalted, rarified, eulogizing kind of timber and tenor right? Whereas the British sources, these archival sources, uh, you know, that kind of followed or tracked the Nawab's pilgrimage, they were, by contrast, far more, you know, matter of fact, uh, far more kind of rote and humdrum in their, in their, in their kind of, you know, um, uh, 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 in their, in their kind of textual tenor. Um, and, And reading them together, I thought, made for a very kind of interesting exercise, right? And, and that's actually something that I tried to do more or less throughout the study, right? The study is really kind of concerned with trying to bring together sources that aren't typically um, brought together, right? Uh, Because, simply because, you know, typically, and I think you may have encountered this yourself, you know, in your study of the Indian Ocean as well, or Indian Ocean history as well, right? Typically scholars tend to privilege either archival sources or narrative sources right and i think you know what this book really tries to kind of attempt is trying to kind of actually try to kind of conjugate these two kind of materials right in and in, a, in, a, in, a, in 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 and bring them together in in a coherent narrative of some sort
1: indeed and, and quite well uh, speaking of interventions um how does your work on pre 1850s colonial history of the hedge differ from existing narratives uh and how does it fit within the current scholarship on the history of the Hajj. And we have, you know, handful of different Hajj books, whether it's Russian, Central Asian, Ottoman, Hejaz, and South Asia and Southeast Asia. Um what is the main intervention of your book that you see?
0: Th- th- thanks, Ahmed. You know, you know <laughs> well, thanks for the question. You know, one of the things is you know um there's a there's a saying in Bengali that goes something to the effect of you know it's easy to score a goal in an empty arena, right? Meaning to say it's easy easy to quite easy to achieve something when there aren't any other players in the field, right? Now the historiography of the Hajj uh, before 1850 at least is not quite like that, right? But you know insofar as scholars have looked at the matter, right? They've primarily done so through a kind of you know top down. You know, macro historical perspectives, right? I think the historiography of the Hajj is far richer for the kind of post 1850 period, right? I, like you mentioned, you know, there are important and very detailed and kind of richly kind of, um, uh, richly kind of documented uh, works that have come out in recent years by, you know, by by the likes of Eileen Kane for Russia, or Lale John for the Ottoman Empire, as well as Michael Christopher Lowe for the Ottoman Empire. But, you know, insofar as the period before 1850 is concerned, uh, you know, what we really have are these kind of, you know, top down and all style studies, right, that are that were primarily kind of looking at uh, the the issue of the Hajj through either a kind of broadly commercial or a broadly kind of diplomatic lens. Right. So, you know, and, you know, here the pioneers were really scholars like Suraya Faroki for the Ottoman Empire. Uh, or Michael Pearson for um, the Indian Ocean for the Mughal Empire. and uh, and you know, my teacher, Eric Tagliacozzo in his book on the Hajj from Southeast Asia has also kind of you know for at least for the 18th pre-1850 period he also adopted a kind of broadly you know anal style long durée kind of um historiography to kind of understand that, or to kind of parse the issue um so i think where my book kind of differs or departs from that tradition is that you know i certainly learned a great deal from that kind of historical tradition and and i i would say i even kind of you know, adopted uh, 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 various kind of methodological strains from that tradition. Uh, But I think where my book kind of departs is that, you know, I try to kind of bring together that macro historical perspective. Uh, I try to bring, uh, uh, I try to kind of bring that macro historical perspective in conversation with uh, uh, the kind of individual thought worlds of pilgrims themselves, right? So as you mentioned, you know, uh, uh, you know, much of this book is, reliant not simply on the kind of administrative archives of the Hajj so for example either from the British or Ottoman side uh and how they were kind of governing managing administering the movements and mobilities of pilgrims but uh a lot of this book also relies on a, a kind of you know you know a lot of this book is anchored in um the narrative sources and the first person accounts of pilgrims themselves right and and, you know, so I try to kind of, as it were, bring together the etic and the emic as uh, together, right? Um, that is to say, kind of the outsider's perspective and the insider's perspective as well. So I think that's where really my intervention lies. And that's where it really departs insofar as the historiography is of the Hutch specifically is concerned, right? Because, you know, um, you know, I'm really concerned with trying to kind of trying to understand how we can, you know, you know, um, Try to understand the Hajj not simply as a kind of, you know, state enterprise or an enterprise that simply empires were concerned with, but rather also how imperial subjects and subjects of empires, right, as that is to say, the pilgrims themselves, how they kind of experience this thing and what, what meanings they kind of derive from their mobilities, from their exchanges, from their experiences as travelers, as sojourners, and so on and so forth uh, between India and the Middle East. Um, but I should, I should, I should also say that, you know, uh, certainly, you know, my, this book is obviously about the Hajj and it, it is making, it is obviously trying to therefore make an intervention in that specific historiography, but I, I I'd say, you know, my real audience or the book, I really ultimately wrote the book for, uh, South Asianists uh, on the one hand and Indian Oceanists on the other, right? So, uh, you know, and, and, you know, in ma- in many ways, the Hajj in the book, you know, works as something of a kind of surrogate, right, to write a kind of broader global history of um, that kind of tries to situate uh, South Asia within broader kind of currents uh, of historical change in the Indian Ocean world.
1: Yes, and I I think the the book also would be of interest to a wider audience beyond South Asianists and also Indian Oceanists because you do engage with the Ottoman historiography and the Hejaz as well. And also inter-imperial conflicts and rivalries and governors would be of relevance to any historian uh, interested in the early modern period. Um, So thank you for that overview. Uh, Moving to the chapters and the organization of the book, uh, the book is divided in three parts uh in seven chapters the first part um you start with the introduction Hajj in the crisis of empire and then you move to the first part departures experiences and exchanges in the indian ocean uh, the first chapter uh, pilgrim passages the second chapter the hajj Bazaar economy and then we move to the second part crossings ideologies and institutions across empires the third chapter the ulema on hajj the fourth, uh, Hindi Sufis and the Hajj. And the last part returns, states between home and the Haramain. Uh, the fifth chapter is the Company Raj and the Hajjis, or the Hajjis. Uh, the sixth is uh, routes of the Muslim state. And the seventh, uh, Fakirs and fanatics, or reconfiguring pilgrimage and political culture. And finally, in the conclusion, the Hajj and the ends of the Mughal world. Uh, Let's parse now these chapters, and I have uh, prepared some questions for that. The first one, what roles did the Mughal uh, Ottoman and British empires play in shaping the Hajj from South Asia, and how were these affected by war and revolution? I understand that this is a broad question, and probably this is (laughs) the overall theme of this conversation. Um, but if you give the listeners an introduction into this world that you are sketching in the book.
0: Sure. So, you know, you know. so the, the book really is, Emmett, you know, it's trying to kind of, you know, analyze or or trying to kind of really understand a discrete or a specific problem. Right. And, you know, the really kind of the, if there is a kind of central question that the book raises. Right. Or if there is a kind of central puzzle that that the book tries to kind of figure out. It's really the question of how how it was that, you know, over the course of the latter half of the 18th century and the early 19th century, right in South Asia, right, which is a period that, you know, typically uh, historians recall as a period when the Mughal Empire in South Asia was collapsing and British colonialism was, you know, expanding and indeed consolidating itself. How is it that in this milieu, right, uh, against and against the backdrop of, um, of the decline and disintegration of one of the kind of great Muslim empires of the early modern era, how is it that, you know, Muslim cl- political culture, right, acquired far greater relevance in South Asia? Right. So there's a kind of I thought that there was kind of interesting paradox or a puzzle there. Right. And how is it on top of that, that that this Muslim political culture began to resemble and uh, and, you know, have very interesting kind of affinities. Right. Uh, With uh, the political cultures um, of Islam in in the Middle East, that is to say, in the Ottoman Empire. Right. And, and that's really the kind of central kind of question that the book raises, right? So it's really a kind of, like I said, it is really a kind of imperial history of the Hajj, right? And it is to understand how, as, you know, um, as these kind of imperial revolutions were occurring, right, what contemporaries also parsed or conceptualized through the Indo-Persian watchword, In-Kilab, uh, how is it that... Um, uh, you know muslim political culture right broadly construed right and here i mean you know uh, you know the kind of legal dimensions of islam right or the kind of increasing relevance of sharia right uh, or for example the rise of revivalist or reformist strands of islam right or indeed the advent of more kind of orthodox minded uh, forms of sufism right for example the, uh, the for example the kind of naqshbandi or mujaddidi branches of sufism How is it that these things suddenly became very, very important, right? And how, and how, and how did the British, in turn, as they were kind of expanding and consolidating and and kind of you know displacing the Mughals, how were they in turn kind of reacting to these kind of formations at, uh, uh, in 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 the in in the subcontinent and in the Indian Ocean, right? And you know the answer that I kind of you know forward in the book is that you know none of this occurred you know ex nihilo as it were right it's not as though you know um uh, uh it, you know it's not as though it, you know that you know that the kind of conditions on the ground and the subcontinent alone kind of or alone can you know explain how these kind of global turns occurred right but rather it's because you know many from the subcontinent were actually in kind of these kind of uh, dense conversations with their co-religionists and um, and and counterparts in the Middle East. Right. And and these conversations were actually being enabled uh, by um, by hutch pilgrimage traffic. Right. So as 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 many from the subcontinent were going to the Middle East, right, whether as you know, you know, Ulama scholars, right, to study in the Middle East and the kind of madrasas and seminaries of the Middle East, or indeed as, say, for example, statesmen, right, who were going to the Middle East and kind of striking up kind of diplomatic relations with, uh, with uh, their Ottoman counterparts, or indeed, for example, you know, Sufi mystics, as they were kind of you know building up kind of uh, very interesting kind of institutional kind of brick and mortar networks in the in the Ottoman world. That is to say, Indian pilgrims, Indian pilgrims, as they were kind of traveling to the Ottoman world, right? So all of these, you know, what what ultimately this kind of, you know, what the Hajj ultimately was able to kind of churn together, as it were, was a very kind of interesting set of reactions, right, to the decline and decentralization and in, indeed the kind of these uh, these kind of overall, these kind of larger imperial revolutions, right? And the, the argument of the central argument of the book is that really it's as a result of the of the collapse of a Muslim empire that you began to see this very interesting and very powerful reaction, right, that was being forged by uh, many kind of Muslim subjects as they were kind of, you know, engaging in conversations with their co-religionists in the Middle East. Right. And in the process, you had you had the kind of crystallization of a kind of new or novel and indeed modern forms of Muslim political culture, right? Muslim political culture that kind of indeed departed from um, from earlier practices, right? At least in the subcontinent, right? In the sense that, you know, whereas, you know, under the Mughals, you know, Things were more oriented towards Central Asian traditions because, you know, that's where the Mughals ultimately came from, right? In the 16th century, when they when they when they began to conquer territory in in India, right? And now suddenly, you you had uh, 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 many from South Asia saying that, you know, actually our where, where we should really kind of orient our our worldview toward is Mecca and Medina, right, as opposed to Central Asia. Right, so there was this kind of sea change, really, and this kind of you know uh, seismic shift in terms of how um, Muslim politics, broadly construed, was uh, was being uh, conceptualized by many actors in the Indian subcontinent. And and I and and my argument really is that this occurred as a result of. Uh, uh, imperial breakdown or imperial revolutions on the one hand and reactions to them, and the um, interactions that were being enabled by pilgrimage uh, uh, on the other hand.
1: Thank you for elucidating that part. Uh, and moving from empires to imperial subjects, and you've mentioned parts of that, uh, if you can elaborate more on how did various uh, mobile Muslim groups use the Hajj to achieve their aims during this period of changing power dynamics. And how does studying uh circuitary regimes like the Hajj contribute to understanding people's perceptions of their worlds?
0: Right. So so like I said, I mean, you know, you know, there are, you know, this, you know, the, you know, Hajjis from the from 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 South Asia were a highly differentiated lot. Right. And, you know, this book really does kind of train its attention to uh, a whole host of figures and a whole host of actors. Right. These include, like I mentioned, statesmen, you know, uh, ulama ulama scholars, uh, Sufi mystics. uh, But they also include, you know, many parts of the book also include, you know, know, subaltern peasant pilgrims. Right. From agrarian backgrounds. Right. And each of them, therefore, obviously, uh, you know, used... To use your word, use the Hajj, you know, uh to different ends, right? So whereas, for example, you know, uh ulama scholars were primarily kind of fixated on questions of how to kind of revive Islam, right? Uh, you know, what they called, you know, this tradition of Tajdi that powerfully emerged in the 18th century, right? Um uh, statesmen, on the other hand, right, uh, many kind of many many figures from these kind of Mughal successor states that emerged in the provinces in India, right? Uh, they were beginning to turn to uh, the Hajj to build up diplomatic ties with the Middle East, right? So you know, and their concerns were kind of rather different, right? So you know, just to kind of you know, give you an example from each of these two two groups, right? So for example, you know, ulama scholars, right, in this period, right, were very powerfully kind of Um, uh, uh, influenced by these kind of revivalist traditions that were kind of bubbling up to the surface in the Middle East, right? So this was obviously the period where, uh, uh, you know, that great tradition of uh, reformist or revivalist Islam, uh, namely Wahhabism, really came to the fore in Arabia, right? It was in this period that uh, Wahhabis were on the ascendant, and they were kind of, you know, actively kind of engaging in a kind of insurgent warfare right and a kind of insurgency against the uh against Ottoman rule in Arabia and uh, their clerics and their uh kind of clerical Cadre very powerfully kind of uh, were in conversation with um, ulama uh, figures from South Asia, uh, South Asia, right? And indeed, you know, uh, Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahhab, right? The kind of putative founding figure of Wahhabism, right? The you know eponymous founder of Wahhabism. His main teacher actually happened to be a kind of scholar from India, right? Muhammad Hayatul Sindhi, who was a kind of you know alim from uh, from 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 the northwestern parts of South Asia, right? And when you actually look at these kind of connections together, what you find is, is that there were these very, uh, very intriguing kind of streams of revivalism that were kind of going back and forth right, between the subcontinent and the Middle East, and each of them were actually very interestingly reacting to the exigencies of imperial change, right? So on the one hand, you had, you know, like I mentioned, the collapse of the Mughal Empire, so that's what, you know, you know, these religious scholars in South Asia were really ultimately concerned with. On the other hand, you had these kind of, you know, the decentralization and the kind of increasing fragmentation of the Ottoman Empire, and that's what the Wahhabis in, uh, Wahhabis in Saudi Arabia, or Saudi, excuse me, in Arabia were primarily concerned with right whereas for example you know when it came to statesmen right um in in uh, from uh, from india who were in conversation with with the ottoman world right they were really kind of ultimately uh, more interested in uh building up political ties right by using the hajj as a kind of um uh by using the hajj as a kind of you know medium of exchange right now you know you know what's interesting here is that you know you know, the Hajj had always been something of a kind of or Mecca, I should say, was has always functioned as something of a kind of forcing house of political exchange, right, in the Islamic world, right, because it was really, you know, because it was something of a kind of axis mundi, as it were, for the Muslim world. Um, it it, 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 it it therefore always functioned as something of a kind of medium or a kind of, you know forcing house, like I mentioned, like I said, of of political exchange. But what what makes this period particularly interesting and intriguing is that you know, um, many post-mughal states in the Indian subcontinent, whether this be, you know, Mysore, or Arcot in southern India, or indeed Bengal, or Avad, or um, Sindh in uh, northern India, right? Many of these states were very interestingly now, right, turning to the Hajj, right, to uh, shore up uh, deeper and more profound connections with the Ottoman emperors, right? And the reason for this, you know, in my opinion, was, you know, was rather straightforward. Right. You know, this, like I said, it was this was a period when, you know, Mughal rule was fundamentally kind of, you know, collapsing and contracting. Right. And uh, many from the many kind of these many of these rulers that emerged from under the kind of carapace of Mughal rule in the subcontinent, therefore found it necessary to find another kind of, you know, imperial patron, and specifically, ideally, obviously, a kind of Muslim uh, imperial patron for their kind of political endeavors at the regional level, right? And so many of these Many of these rulers began to turn, right, to the Hajj to kind of, again, hammer out uh, interesting kind of political mediations with the, um, with the sublime port all the way out in Istanbul, right? And, and many of them did so by kind of, you know, sending gift articles or, you know, diplomats or, you know, letters and so on and so forth. Uh, to um uh, to uh, uh the ottoman rulers uh, via the hajj right so and 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 they were also therefore also in kind of dense and kind of dense conversations with um uh the uh, the political subordinates of the ottomans as well in the hejaz namely the 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 the, the sherifs of mecca right so you know each actors each of these sets of actors you know kind of uh uh took to the hajj and used the hajj for their own for their own ends as it were right but you know and and what my book tries to kind of uh uh what my book tries to kind of you know um uh put together or tries to assemble is really a kind of eclectic picture of how how they kind of uh, how they did so, right? But I, like I said, and it must be emphasized, right? These people were did come from very, very dif- different backgrounds, and you know these pilgrims were very, very kind of differentiate, dif- different in their kind of you know political, social, and so on and so forth orientations, and therefore, right? So they each had their own kind of agendas, as it were, when it comes to, when it came to kind of how they um, how they kind of uh, tapped into these uh, into the networks of the hajj to kind of you know forge their own agendas.
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, so the Hajj is a religious, pious act that can be instrumentalized for political ends. But beside that, also it's it was accompanied by what you call Hajj bazaar economy. So how might examining the Hajj bazaar economy shed light on historical exchanges between South Asia and the Ottoman Hejaz?
0: So you know, I I you know I borrowed this. Um... Concept, I should say, Ahmed. You know, this isn't my. I, I you know, this isn't my concept. The idea of a bazaar economy. Uh, this was actually famously uh, uh, forwarded by uh, a scholar of South Asia by the name of Rajas Kantaroy, Roy, uh, who 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 theorized the bazaar economy, as he called it, as something of a kind of commercial underbelly that emerged in the late 18th and 19th centuries uh under um uh, under under the kind of under colonial capitalism right so you know you know formerly it used to be thought that uh you know with the ad- advent of colonial capitalism in india and the indian ocean right you know you had the kind of you know uh, decline of, uh, indigenous merchant groups, right. And indigenous kind of merchant capitalists. Right. Um, you know, but as we know now, right. And as new work has kind of emerged, right. You know, and you know, you, you know, by, by the likes of, for example, Fahad Bishara. At University of Virginia, or for example, Johann Matthew at Rutgers University, uh, what we find now is that you know that actually isn't the case, right? Uh, and what you had was this kind of you know these kind of resilient forms of kind of indigenous capitalism that persisted despite the advent of uh, colonial hegemony, British colonial hegemony, and British colonial capitalist hegemony, to be precise. Um, and 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 here you know uh, is where you know. Rajat Kantaroy came in and said that, look, you know, what happened was, you know, there was this kind of bizarre sector, as he defined it, right, and this was a kind of transregional arena of commercial exchange, and that really functioned as a kind of subsidiary or a kind of secondary arena where uh, commerce, credit, and so on and so forth continued and continued to flourish, uh, despite or even in the face of colonial hegemony and colonial domination. And uh, where where I came in, or where my chapter comes in, is um, is uh, is by looking at the how this bazaar functioned uh, specifically uh, in um, in the terrains, in the commercial terrains of the hajj, right, and specifically in how it functions in the kind of material uh, economy of exchanges between uh, the subcontinent and Arabia. And here, what I found and what was very interesting to me is that, you know, uh, what I found was that a, a a kind of major component of the bazaar economy was how it was not simply kind of actively, um, uh, you know, actively mediating uh, uh, speculative and commercial exchanges, right? That is to say profit-driven exchanges, but how it was actually also very interestingly integrating uh, exchanges that we today, wouldn't consider to bracket within kind of, quote unquote, capitalist or commercial exchanges, right? That is to say, gift economies or gift exchanges, right? And, you know, I found this kind of extensive inventories of gifts, right, that were being sent by various rulers, right, from uh, provincial kingdoms, to the Hejaz, right, to various kind of potentates, various kind of, uh, you know, provincial rulers uh, in uh, in the Hejaz, as well as in kind of neighboring regions of the Middle East, as for example, in Egypt, and so on and so forth, right? And, uh, and what was very interesting about these gift objects is that, you know, they weren't uh, being simply kind of funneled as simply gift objects but oftentimes they were very interestingly kind of imbricated within the kind of folds of commercial exchange right so and and what i found was very interestingly you know they were um these these gift economies uh were very interestingly kind of integrated right and uh with within kind of you know like i said kind of commercial commercial interactions so just to give you an example or just to give you a few examples you know many of these gift objects right which included by the way you know very kind of you know, precious items such as jewels and, you know, very kind of elaborately inlaid and elaborately kind of crafted um, uh, uh, swords and and uh, textiles, very rich textiles of silk and cotton and so on and so forth. Many of these gift objects, very interestingly, right, were being kind of Again, uh, channeled right by using, for example, financial instruments right that we today associate with uh, with the kind of with an emergent capitalist economy in the Indian Ocean, right. So, for example, you know they were very heavily reliant, right, the buying and selling of these gift objects, right. Before they became gift objects, obviously you had to buy them as commodities, or these rulers had to buy them as commodities. Many of them were actually very interestingly reliant on uh, promissory notes, right, or hundis as they're called, right, in the South Asian context. Context, or hawala, as they're also known in the Middle Eastern context, right? So, kind of a very interesting or a very important kind of credit instrument that was that was that was typically used for uh, uh, economic transactions, but here were also being used for gift uh, transactions, right? Or, for example, what was very interesting is that you know some rulers, including the Mughals, right, what they would do is right, they would kind of. Uh, engage uh, you know in in what we might call a forms of uh, altruistic arbitrage right when they when they kind of forwarded their gifts to the Middle East right so you know just to give you an example from the Mughal case uh we know that the Mughals would send um would uh, excuse me invest in uh textiles uh in Gujarat right which they would buy up they would buy up say you know a kind of you know they would they would invest in a kind of uh, um, um 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 they would invest they would make these kind of you know capital ventures in in buying up textiles which they would eventually sell in the hijas for up to a kind of 40 50% profit markup right and what they would do is they would use that kind of profit that they would kind of you know generate from selling those textiles and they would use that as charity in the hejaz Right. So rather than this being simply a matter of kind of, you know, gifts being completely divorced from commercial transactions, they were interestingly, very uh, interesting kind of integrated within commercial transactions is what I found. Uh, But what I also found is that it was really with the advent of colonial capitalism that we began to kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, begin to kind of Uh, see that they're, you know, increasingly, you know, with the kind of specific kind of peculiar economic ideologies that the British brought with them to uh, India and the Indian Ocean, that they eventually began to kind of distinguish between gifts and non-gifts, right, between economic and non-economic forms of transactions, right. And that's really when this kind of then when there was a kind of separation, as it were, right, between these two realms, right. And that's when, you know, the bazaar, qua bazaar, Right. Uh, began to really kind of crystallize in in uh, in 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 the sense that Roger Cantor wrote about it. Right. Um, um, I mean, I can talk about it in greater length if you'd like. But if that gives you a sense of how I I I was looking at this thing or how I kind of examined this thing. Um, but yeah, I can I can I can talk about it at greater length should you like
1: that's yeah that's very interesting and uh i'm pretty sure the the audience have learned a lot about how the Hajj was also an economic uh you know phenomena beside being a religious uh, season as well and uh you've mentioned previously uh the intriguing fact of mohammed al-Wahhab, you know the the famed uh, theologian had a Sindhi uh, teacher and so the book delves also into to another class of actors, which are the, the ulema. Uh, so how did South Asian ulema navigate their roles as religious scholars, but also political actors uh, during the late Mughal Empire's decline vis-a-vis post-Mughal uh, era? And especially I'm interested in their connection with uh, with the Harameyan via the pilgrimage. Uh, how did changes in the political structure Affect the ulama's uh, perspectives on, uh, for example, canon law and religious authority.
0: Sure. Yeah. You know, one of the very interesting things, Amit, is that you know under under the kind of in during the kind of classical phase of the Mughal Empire, right? That is in the period um, that precedes uh, uh, my book. um, The ulama were really very insignificant actors, right, in Mughal politics, right? Um, They were. Uh, fundamentally kind of subordinated to uh uh the political whims of of the padishahs and sultans right of the Mughal Empire. Um and this famously occurred you know at, at beginning with the uh, with the rule with the reign of uh the great Mughal Emperor Akbar in the 16th century who was the first to really you know um to really again um uh Make the ulama into this kind of you know, or subordinate the ulama and and really kind of um, decree that uh, 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 um, emperors or you know Sultans themselves should have the right to kind of you know dictate the terms of politics and governance and so on. right? So ulama were really for the for the most part kind of secondary actors, right? So far as Mughal politics was concerned, right? But what's very interesting and what I found over the course of my research is that, you know, you know this begins to change. With a Mughal decentralization, right? So as the Mughal empire fragments and as it begins to decline, uh, you know, rather than this, you know, spurring the kind of concomitant decline of the ulama as well, right? It actually emboldens them and it actually kind of makes them more powerful, right? And increasingly, right, you know, they begin to make the argument. To put it kind of crudely, they begin to ar- make the argument. Right, that you know the reason why this Muslim empire is declining, and the reason why you know the sky is falling on our heads, as it were, is because this Muslim empire is insufficiently Muslim, right? They're not Muslim enough, right? And therefore, uh, what what we really need to do is really to kind of you know double down on you know uh, on on Sharia, uh, for example. Or, or we should really kind of focus on reviving, as they called it, right, um, uh, reviving, uh, you know, the tenets of Sunni Islam, right? And, you know, what, what I kind of, you know, also suggest in the book is that, you know, much of this was, you know, happening as, as uh, many scholars and these kind of, you know, scholars of Sharia, scholars of religion, as they were, you know, in interesting conversation with, uh, um, with uh, with their co-religionists and counterparts in the Middle East, right? And you know, you know, the way that I track this is by looking at the career trajectories of uh some luminaries from the South Asian ulama from the 18th century, right? Uh, chief among them, for example, uh, uh, the the kind of key, the kind of iconic and iconic kind of figure of the ulama in uh in from. 18th century South Asia. And indeed, you know, he cast a very long shadow into the 19th century as well. Uh, Namely, this was a figure by the name of Shah Waliullah, a kind of great legist, uh, great kind of, you know, and theologian uh, who made uh, you know important interventions uh, in uh, in uh, uh, Sunni theology uh, 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 not just you know that were that were not just for relevant for South Asian Islam but indeed arguably for global Islam I would say uh, but I also track this through far lesser known figures right so one of the one of the things that I do you know in the you know one of the kind of approaches that I take in the in the chapter that's focused on the ulama. Uh, is that, you know, I focus and I concentrate on this kind of relatively little known figure, right, relatively little known kind of alim by the name of uh, Muhammad Hashim, right? He was kind of, you know, very kind of, again, he was something of a kind of minnow compared uh, to the giant that was Shah Waliullah. And, uh, you know, but what was very interesting about this kind of unknown figure, right, or relatively unknown figure, was that he was caught up in some of the same kind of networks of revivalism and reformism, right? That Shaawaliyullah was engaged, uh, engaging in, right? So Shaawaliyullah himself, of course, went on Hajj, right? And he wrote kind of extensively about his experiences on Hajj, but so did Muhammad Hashim. Right. And what was very interesting about this figure, uh, Muhammad Hashim, is that, you know, not only did he go on Hajj, right, but he actually very interestingly smuggled back a lot of the ideas that, you know, a lot of these kind of revivalist reformist ideas that he encountered while on Hajj, right, to inform state formation in, in the regional setting, in, in a regional setting in, uh, in the province of Sindh in northwestern India, right? So this was the period, like I mentioned, when, you know, as the Mughal Empire was retreating, a whole variety of kind of, you know, provincial kind of kingdoms began to kind of emerge all across the Indian subcontinent. One of these kingdoms, uh, a kind of, you know, a kingdom that is it, it isn't actually, hasn't been kind of greatly studied by uh, or extensively studied by scholars of south asia uh, uh this kingdom of this kalhora kingdom uh, uh this kingdom in 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 the northwestern quadrant of the subcontinent uh, in the province of Sindh. it was a relatively short-lived kingdom uh uh but th- this this character this very interesting character my my uh, my alim muhammad hashim what he did, did was he worked as a kind of kazi or a judge of uh, Islamic Islamic law in this in this kingdom, and what I found was you know I, you know I closely looked at his kind of you know career trajectory in his writings on the hajj right he wrote a very interesting kind of Indo Persian uh, manual on a uh, kind of how to guide on how to perform the pilgrimage as it were and what I found was you know, if, uh, you know by recovering or reconstructing the kind of you know the micro history of his of his career what I found was that you know a lot of the ideas that he was kind of um, pushing in, in at the provincial level. Right. And he was really pushing for a kind of, you know, you know, a kind of greater enforcement of Sharia law and so on and so forth. Right. He was really doing so as a result of the ideas that, you know, originally he, you know, inspired him in in, in Mecca and Medina right? And in the seminaries of Mecca and Medina, right? And the main reason why he was really kind of pushing these ideas at the regional level was uh, because, you know, you had this kind of new state that was obviously forming, right, in the wake of Mughal decentralization. And this state was obviously kind of, you know, hungry for religious legitimacy right so because it was a novel and new state right uh, and as a result right this you know this minor figure became very very important right at this regional level simply because he was a a custodian of sharia and a custodian of uh islamic law right and therefore uh he became suddenly a very kind of important figure at this again at this at at the provincial level right so you know again uh, you know, I tracked this problem of or the track, the question of how the ulama engaged with uh, the Hajj uh, through both um, major figures like Shawaliullah, but also, like I said, through these kind of more lesser known figures like uh, like uh, Muhammad Hashim. Right. Uh, and and my basic argument here, or my basic contention is that they were all kind of very interestingly uh, investing in uh, these, again, these kind of reformist or revivalist terrains of 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 religion, right? Uh, as as you know as the Mughal Empire was giving way to regional uh, uh, states and regional polities.
1: I, I appreciate that about about the book that you brought these understudied uh, marginal figures alongside you know, the more studied uh, known figures in uh, the history of, of the Hajj and, and the ulama who were connected uh, to the politics of South Asia and Arabia. Um, I want to take you back to your fieldwork around the Sufi lodges. Uh, what meanings uh, did Hindi hold in the Ottoman context? And how did it influence the integration of non-Ottoman Sufis into Ottoman society? Uh, and in comparison to that, how did the British... And their perceptions of pan-Islamism during this time impact Indian Sufi lodges in the Ottoman Empire.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you know what was very interesting about these uh, lodges, right? These Sufi lodges, um, uh, Ahmed, was the fact that you know in Ottoman sources, and Ottoman archival texts, and so on and so forth, and indeed in their chronicles, you know they they're all they're all they always refer to them as Hindi tekkes, right? Or tekke being the kind of Turkish word for taqiyya, that is to say a Sufi lodge, right? And they're also called zavies and so on and so forth in, in, in you know, or other kind of synonyms for Sufi lodges as well, right? But they're all referred to as Hindi Sufi lodges. And there were actually uh, not one, not two, not three, not four, but indeed 13 of them that spanned the length and breadth of the Ottoman Empire, right? You know, there were these Hindi Sufi lodges in Mecca, in Damascus, in Cairo, um, you know, there were several of them in Anatolia, right in Asia Minor, uh, and two of them indeed in the Ottoman capital of Istanbul itself, right. And they clearly functioned, right, so far as the archives archival sources uh, tell us, right They clearly functioned right as a network right uh and they clearly functioned in tandem as it were right so they very interestingly you know you know they you know they they had all sorts of kind of interactions there were all sorts of interactions between these sufi lodges right and their sheikhs and their visitors and their and the pilgrims that came to stay there and so on and so forth right but you know the puzzle and the very interesting question lies in you know uh in 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 their nominal designation right why is it that they were called uh, indian or hindi sufi lodges right now what's very interesting is that you know, uh, you know, not a lot of work has been done, I should say, about uh, you know regarding these Sufi lodges, right? The only really, the only scholar that actually worked on these Sufi lodges before before me was a French scholar by the name of Thierry Zarpon, and he really looked at the Sufi lodges uh, from an earlier era, right? Uh, although he's written a very imp- important and interesting book ab- about the Indian Sufi lodge. Um, in in Jerusalem, right, and and how many Indian pilgrims came uh, came there in the nineteenth century, and and that but that 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 specific Indian Sufi lodge, I should say, by the way, in Jerusalem uh, uh, remains the only active one of these thirteen lodges to this day. It's still it's still a very active Sufi lodge, I should say. Um, you know and and what he discovered what or what he kind of theorized and postulated was very interestingly that, you know, so far as the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries were concerned, which is which is when we when we first find any mention of these Sufi lodges in the sources, uh, uh, they weren't actually uh, um, um, they weren't actually uh, uh, sites for um, Indian pilgrims at all right? But rather uh, uh, Central Asians, right? That is to say pilgrims from regions such as today's Uzbekistan, today's Northern Afghanistan, and so on and so forth, right? And it's really these figures, these Central Asians, right, who uh, came to be known as, quote unquote, Hindis or Indians in um, in uh in 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 the ottoman imagination as it were right now there are many reasons as to why this may have happened and actually one uh, one answer actually lies in uh uh in the fact that uh many of these central asians uh actually went on hajj by way of india because you know the uh, you know and as i discuss in my book you know it was actually you know far easier to go on Hajj by sea than it was to go by land, right? By taking the kind of overland route through Eurasia, right? Whether you were South Asian or Central Asian, right? It was far easier for you to go, for you to kind of board a ship from the western coast of India in order to make it to the Red Sea and the Hejaz, right? So it's really because of that kind of detour, as it were, right? That many of these people became, came to be known as Indians, Right. Uh, But what I also found over the course of my research is that, you know, over the course of the late 18th, uh, certainly by the late 18th, uh, if not even earlier by the early 18th, right, but certainly by the late 18th century, and most uh, definitely into the 19th century, right, this word uh, Hindi began to acquire far greater precision, right, to refer to the Indian subcontinent right? And to India specifically, right? And how do we know this, right? We know this because, you know, it was precisely in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, right, that uh, uh, another kind of parallel uh, network of Sufi lodges also began to kind of pop up in the Ottoman Empire, right? And these lodges were explicitly called uh, Uzbek uh, Sufi lodges or Afghan Sufi lodges. Right. And actually, um uh uh, uh Lale John at uh at CUNY has written a marvelous and excellent book about this called Spiritual Subjects, uh, about these kind of Central Asian pilgrims that took to the roots of uh of of the Hajj in the in uh, in, in the in the 19th century. That's what, that's the period she focuses on. Right. And not only that, what I also found was that you know beginning in the 18th century, and you know, and this pattern only accelerated in the 19th centuries. Uh, um, many Indian states also began to kind of tap into these Sufi networks, right, and to these Sufi lodges, uh, the, into the networks of these Sufi lodges, right, in order to kind of again, uh, create connections with the Ottoman Empire, right? So so you know, you know, to you know, to get to the point, you know, to you know, to cut a rather long story down to its proper size, um, you know, whereas in in in, in an earlier period, you know this term Hindi. You know was in something of a kind of flux in in the kind of in 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 the in 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 so far in so far as um, uh, the Ottomans were concerned and. And, you know, it was something of a kind of nebulous term that could occasionally refer to Central Asia, occasionally to South Asia, and indeed even to Southeast Asia sometimes. Uh, and because sometimes Hindi was often even used to refer to uh, Javanese pilgrims, for example, in the, in the Ottoman world. Uh, increasingly, as a result of various kind of realignments, right, uh, political realignments, social realignments, and so on and so forth, right, uh, uh, this thing began to kind of... Uh, uh, latch on specifically uh, in a kind of locative manner to uh, the Indian subcontinent specifically, right? Uh, and that's what's very interesting, right? And I try to kind of track that change uh, in that chapter in that in that specific chapter that I dedicate to um, uh, 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 to uh, Indian Sufis, right? And I should say you know just as a kind of you know as a, you know, I should also say that you know another kind of major reason as to why this was happening was simply because you know Indian Sufism, or a specific kind of sub-branch of Indian Sufism, right? That is to say the Mujaddidi tradition, which is this kind of great tradition of revivalist Sufism that first kind of, was, um, that first kind of emerged in uh, the Mughal Empire in, in the Mughal province of Punjab, now also began to kind of wield enormous influence uh, in both elite and popular circles in the Ottoman Empire. Right, so um, uh, and this was a you know this was a sub branch of Naqshbandi Sufism that w- that began life in uh, in the 17th century uh, Mughal Empire, but suddenly it in in beginning in the 18th century it took wings to really kind of uh, you know you know spread across the Ottoman Empire, and and, and it did so in part through the Hajj. And in part also through uh, these kind of brick and mortar uh, Sufi Lodge networks that were being um, built by uh, 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 these these Naqshbandi mystics uh, from India in the Middle
1: East.'m I'm, I'm excited to see how your your interventions and your arguments and in, in these chapters would be connected to the recent scholarship on uh, the Sufi networks from South Asia to Central Asia and down to Arabia. Uh, so this is really important conversation to have. And I feel there is more work to be done in this regard. Uh, thank you for sharing all of that. And uh, as the conversation, the history goes, um, we can't skip, of course, the East India Company, the big elephant in the room, uh, as we are talking about the Mughals and the Ottomans. Uh, how does your book approach this complex history? Uh, of, you know, from the commercial to the colonial period um, regarding the management of the hajj. uh, Where do you see, um, let's say, uh, points of contentions between you and others who have examined the involvement of the company in the history of the hajj?
0: Sure, thanks for the question, Amit. You know, one of the very interesting things is, you know, the study of the hajj under the East India Company is uh, is is non-existent that is to say that historiography effectively doesn't exist right in so far as we have uh a, a, a kind of historiographical tradition of writing about the hajj under colonial rule it really only begins after 1850 right that is to say at the kind of you know when at the kind of in the mature period of colonialism right when uh, british colonial rule enters its uh you know its you know it's it's high noon, as it's often referred to in the literature, right? In the Indian subcontinent, certainly, but also as it kind of expands uh, out from the Indian subcontinent into the Indian Ocean, right? So you know, so what what and and you know and and of course, I mean you know you know important works have been written about that in recent years, right? Uh, perhaps most uh, crucially. Uh, you know, the works, uh, the work of John Slite, uh comes immediately to mind. Uh, you know, he he wrote an important book on the British Empire and the Hajj. But again, that really concerned the period from after 1850, right? Um, now, what's very interesting is that, you know, you know, if you look at the works of scholars like John Slight, right, uh, they make the argument, uh, rightly, in my opinion, uh, that, uh, you know, that the British kind of use the hajj uh, or patronize the hajj right to kind of you know whip up legitimacy as as you know as imperial rulers in asia right so you know and and that's a, and, and that and that's a very kind of that's an eminently uh, eminently uh, uh, you know it's a, it's a very persuasive argument if you ask me right But I think that argument really only applies to the, again, to the period after 1850, right? So in the period that I'm looking at, and what I found over the course of my research is that so far as the East India Company state was concerned, which was really the, which, you know, and it was, you know, the first hundred years of British expansion in South Asia, obviously, really happened under the aegis of this kind of, you know, you know, corporate you know come you know corporate come state uh, uh, entity right that you know that we that we today parse as the east india company state right uh so far as you know that entity was concerned they were they were deeply deeply reluctant to actually have anything to do with um with this with this thing right they didn't want they didn't they didn't want to have anything to do with the Hajj, right uh the east india company famously were you know were were, you know, very reluctant uh, uh, patrons of religion in South Asia, right, Uh, in part because, you know, in part because they didn't really understand, you know, the kind of murky religious worlds of the subcontinent, whether it be Islam or Hinduism, right? And in part because, you know, this uh, this was an empire, you know, the British, you know, you know this was an empire because it was run by a kind of corporation. This was an empire that what that tried to do everything on the cheap, as it were, right? Then they were they were always kind of reluctant to foot the bill, so far as you know religious patronage was concerned, right? So they were very very kind of, you know, uh, they were deeply hesitant in terms of kind of continuing older Mughal traditions of, you know, practicing kind of munificence and so on towards um, uh, religious cults and religious practices in South Asia, right? And the same, and they took the exact same attitude towards Hajj pilgrimage. Now, what's very interesting and what I found over the course of my research is that, you know, despite their reluctance, they were nevertheless kind of interestingly sucked into the worlds of the Hajj, simply because the worlds of the Hajj from the Indian subcontinent were so... uh, was such a kind of powerful tradition, and th- this was a tradition, of course, that was first established by the Mulals, right? Uh, such that you know they found themselves in a position where they could not but patronize uh, or uh, patronize the hajj, right, and patronize specifically the and finance the the pilgrimages of um, specifically uh, 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 these various kind of patrician. Uh, royal pilgrims, right, Uh, from these various Indian kingdoms that were increasingly falling under uh, British domination and British colonial domination, right? So what I found over the course of my research is very interestingly, right, as British rule expanded, not just across uh, uh, India, but also across uh, uh, the Indian Ocean, right, because it was really you know, you know, as British rule consolidated in India, right, you know, by the 1840s, right, the, the East India Company had more or less conquered the entirety of the subcontinent, right? Uh, and that was a process that really began uh, uh, in earnest in the 1750s. It took about 100 years, but they were able to, you know, more or less completely subjugate the subcontinent by the 1850s. But of course, you know, it, it was also as a result of that kind of, you know, of the kind of solid base that they created in the subcontinent that they then used that as a springboard to then venture out into the Indian Ocean, right? Because, you know, it was it was as a result of their, you know, it was, it was as a result of their power in the subcontinent that they eventually, uh, for instance, ventured out in the, into the Persian Gulf. Right and uh, subjugated, um, uh, you know, what is today the United Arab Emirates, right, in the 1810s, right, and which eventually became the so-called Trucial States, right, and they eventually also subjugated uh, uh, Yemen as well, right, or the port of A- Aden in in the 1830s as well, right, and both were both of these were done by the East India Company and not its later avatar, that is to say, the 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 Raj. Uh, and, And, you know, as all of this was happening, what was very interesting is that, you know, they couldn't but, right, act as kind of imperial patrons, even though, again, like I said, they were highly reluctant to do so, right. And as they were kind of, you know, increasingly kind of, you know, toppling one kingdom after another, Right in India, many of these many of these kind of many of the royals from these kingdoms eventually kind of came to them, came to the East India Company, and came to the uh, colonial state, right, and said that look, you know, it, now it's your responsibility that uh, you should now, uh, you know, finance our pilgrimage pilgrimages, right, to the Hejaz. right, um, and so it's really as a it's really as a result of this kind of interesting kind of uh, uh, imperial expansion right that uh, these people became kind of you know uh, um, improbable or unlikely patrons right of the hajj pilgrimage the, by these people i mean the british of course right uh, when, whereas initially uh, like i mentioned they were very very reluctant to do so right um, if th- if that makes sense right if that makes sense to you
1: yes indeed and i really find fascinating your insights and analysis Around um, the family politics uh, reflected in the Indian uh, noble women petitions, and also your analysis of how uh, the you know colonial fear started uh, germinating regarding pan-Islamic fanaticism in eighteen seventies, uh, which leads me to ask you this final question about the 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 company, which is we have a long history as you've mentioned of violence surrounding the Hajj. So how did that contribute right. to the Sepoy Rebellion?
0: So, 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 I mean, you know, I don't really look at the period in the 1870s. That's the period when really kind of, you know, pan-Islamism really begins to consolidate. Right. Uh, But what I do offer in the book is, for the lack of a better word, a kind of prehistory of pan-Islamism. Right. Uh, And what I also offer in the book, right, is the kind of longer history of how, the British eventually, right, began, you know, you know after, it became, after they became kind of imperial patrons of the Hajj, they also became, you know, uh, increasingly wary of how the Hajj was, uh, was a kind of source of uh, what they called fanaticism, right? That is to say, uh, these kind of subversive uh, jihadism right, or jihadi networks that were being kind of, you know, these kind of militant networks that were being kind of, uh, um, that that were, were coming into formation, right, between the Middle East and South Asia, right. And that's really a process that begins as early as the 1810s, right, but it really kind of reaches its climax with the kind of violence of the 1857 rebellion. Right? Uh, the Sepoy Rebellion of 1857, right? And you know, there were various kind of iterations of this, right? Uh um uh you know, but if 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 it if if there is a kind of you know, if if this thing has a kind of uh you know uh uh Point of origin, right? A, 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 you know, a, a point at which it really began. It's really with um, uh, the Hajj journey of this very important, very famous kind of militant jihadi uh, by the name of Sayyid Ahmed Berelwi, uh, uh, who was this very interesting kind of charismatic millenarian uh, 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 jihadi figure, right? Uh, who uh, who who was really active in the 1810s and 1820s, right? He eventually kind of you know was uh, what w- dies or was killed or martyred, uh, according to his followers, in uh, in a jihad uh, that he launched launched in the 1820s. Uh, but you know what's very interesting about Barelvi or Sayyid Ahmed Barelvi is that you know he begins you know, his life as or his career as a jihadi by first going on hajj. Right, so he corrals a bunch of his followers, about 200, uh, 300 of them or so, you know, in the late 1810s. Uh, leases, you know, he leases 10 ships from Calcutta. You know, raises funds, mobilizes followers, and so on and so forth. Goes to Arabia, and then, you know, after coming back from Arabia, he Im- immediately kind of, you know, uh, springs into uh, these kind of, you know, into a jihadi revolt, right? And you know, and he also then inspires a series of other jihads in various other parts of the subcontinent, right? Including in places, for example, in the south, in Hyderabad, in uh, in the Deccan, as well as in the east, in Bengal. Um, and and this thing kind of continues to kind of be a thorn in the side of the colonial state, uh, down to 1857, when it really kind of reaches its climax. Right. And what's very interesting about the colonial state is that, you know, they label all of these actors as Wahhabis, right. That beca- then that becomes the byword for, uh, jihadism in, in early colonial India. And that's actually a byword that continues to kind of, um, uh, continues, uh, to kind of, you know, uh, 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 continues to kind of linger in the archives down to the 1870s, right? Which is when, of course, pan-Islamism takes its place, right, as it were. Um, um, and what's very interesting is, you know, you know, what's very interesting is that, you know you know you know scholars have kind of studied these you know discrete jihads that flared up in various parts of the subcontinent in the past of course uh, uh although they have done so primarily by you know l- you know by looking at the matter from kind of you know again from kind of um at, at, a, at the regional level, right? So, for example, you know, Aisha Jalal has written wrote an important book on 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 Sayyid Ahmed Biralvi and his jihad in the northwestern parts of South Asia. Uh, more recently, uh, Chandra Malampali wrote an excellent book on uh, on these jihadi networks in in the Deccan and Hyderabad. But what what I found over the course of my research is that very interestingly, they were all very interestingly connected. Right. And it wasn't just in the northwest or in the the south, but also in the east and and indeed also in places like what is today modern Kerala in the Malabar coast, on the Malabar coast. Right. That these kind of jihadi groups were active. Right. Uh, uh, Many and many of them were kind of very interesting kind of anti-colonial in their orientation. Right. And but what I also found over the course of my research is that they were all uh, very interestingly uh, uh, connected to the worlds of the Hajj, right? Which is why the British, you know, in their imagination, you know, uh, the Hajj was this kind of, had this kind of subversive streak, right? And they kind of, you know, continued to kind of, Uh, see see the Hajj as this kind of potentially kind of uh, destabilizing force in India itself, but also in the Indian Ocean, right? But of course, you know, this, uh, you know, like I said, you know, insofar as my book kind of offers a prehistory of pan-Islamism, right? Uh, uh, You know, by looking at these kind of, you know, the careers of these kind of militants, uh, you know, this also, of course, goes some ways towards explaining why, um, you know, you know, the British, not just the British, but other kind of European colonial powers, including, for instance, the Dutch, right, why they began to, uh, um, uh, you know, use various kind of modalities of surveillance uh, in the Hijaz and over the Hajj in the later 19th century, right, precisely because they were concerned that, you know, this thing was a breeding, was a breeding ground for uh, uh, Muslim fanaticism, as it was called, right? Uh, And, and this is, of course, something that, you know, uh, uh, scholars have already kind of written extensively about for the latter half of the 19th century, right? But, uh, but what I found was that, you know, this, this kind of that, that, um, that, uh, that posture, right, that kind of uh, posture of the colonial state uh, was already in kind of formation from an earlier period, and we can actually, you know, uh, you know, we can actually stretch that story back all the way back to the eighteen tens, right? If not, slightly earlier even,
1: right? Yes, indeed. Um, I really enjoyed this uh, what you called a, a prehistory of the rich scholarship that we have now, and it's and it's indeed an early modern history that we desperately need of the Hajj. And I see it on many uh, slides on South Asia, the Hajj, the Indian Ocean, uh, imperial history, uh, uh, and other subjects. And uh, beside the lucid narrative, also, you included many terrific images that I really appreciate, uh, including in the book. And thank you for Cambridge, to allowing you to include all of that. Uh, they're really worth uh, checking out, and I really recommend the book, Um for the for the listeners to check out because there are so many details that are impossible to cover in one hour and this is just uh, you know the tip of the iceberg of the wealth of information uh and scholarship that the book provides on the history of the hajj and uh, to wrap up uh, we like to ask uh, a traditional question to our authors i know the book just came out and it would be uh you know uh, fair to, to ask you, but uh, is there anything on your mind now? Uh, this is off your desk. Uh, you hope to work on in the future.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um. Sure. I mean, thanks for the question. I'm actually working on. Uh. I have a couple of irons in the fire, as it were. I, I'm working on two different projects. Um. Uh. One is uh, a project that I'm working on. Um. It concerns the, you know, East India Company and the early colonial states. Um. Uh, entanglements with uh, uh, with uh, Persian uh, uh, as an administrative language, as a language of political thought, uh, and so on and so forth uh, for the first kind of hundred years of uh, British colonial rule in the subcontinent. Uh, you know, I really want to kind of understand how this kind of important, you know, lingua franca, right? Uh, this kind of cosmopolitan language, how it uh, uh, ultimately kind of, declined and went in, and became kind of obsolete uh under uh under british colonial rule uh the british famously kind of replaced persian as an administrative language in india in the 1830s and that's usually regarded as the point when uh uh when this cosmopolitan language eventually become becomes kind of re- begins to be replaced in india and the indian ocean by you know vernacular languages on the one hand but Uh, uh, but primarily by English on the other. Uh, But, you know, what's very interesting is, of course, that the British, of course, uh, uh, used Persian and they even had a Persian chancery. uh, uh, And they patronized Persian scholars and so on and so forth. Right. Uh, Until the 1830s. Right. And so what I want to understand is, you know, these kind of networks of kind of pedagogy, print uh, and political thought. Right, uh, that uh, emerged uh, at the at the kind of intersection of colonial state formation and uh, and Persianate culture or or persographic culture, so to speak. And I actually have a kind of, you know, a kind of. I, I recently wrote an essay, right, uh, that uh, that functions as a kind of my first foray into this topic. It's uh, and it's and it's and it's forthcoming. You know, it'll come out very soon in about in a few months in in the pages of uh, the journal, Modern Intellectual History. And that really serves as a kind of my first foray into this topic. Um, I'm also working on another project. I'm working on another project, which is a kind of microhistory of a Muslim family in uh, the Eastern colonial province of Bengal in the late 19th and uh, early 20th centuries. And uh, this is a family, uh, you know, this was a kind of Shia Urdu-speaking family in a broadly Bengali Sunni milieu uh, in 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 eastern India, and this family was, you know, if they have a kind of claim to fame, they're really known as the kind of. One of the main kind of founders of the all India Muslim League, which was, of course, the political party that uh, spearheaded Muslim nationalism in uh, the Indian subcontinent and um, what I want to do is I want to try to understand how this family uh, succeeded. In uh uh in uh the project of kind of creating a kind of provincial Muslim nationalism in uh in 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 the region of Bengal in the late 19th and 20th centuries. Um you know the story of Muslim nationalism in South Asia, um that is to say the kind of story of uh the creation of Pakistan uh is really it's has been primarily charted by historians by looking at uh the looking at northern india uh because you know that's where really the kind of you know the that was really that really that northern north india really kind of functioned as the kind of heartland of uh, muslim nationalism in a very real sense uh but what's very interesting and what's often neglected in the literature is that you know you know you know that the fact that uh uh the vast majority of the people that eventually uh, became Pakistani citizens were not from northern India, nor indeed from the uh, from from what is today the kind of cartographic, or or what is today uh, Pakistan, but rather from what uh, between 1947 and 1971 was known as East Pakistan, which eventually became Bangladesh, of course. Uh, so what I want to do is I really want to try to kind of understand how that unlikely political experiment. Uh, uh, came to be, and how this family played a role in kind of, uh, in um, in 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 formulating uh a, uh, a kind of and spearheading, like I said, a kind of regional form of Muslim nationalism in Bengal. Uh, so and I and like I said, I really want to try to do this by looking at it um, a, a, as a kind of micro history, uh, that looks at you know their kind of ambitions, frustrations, and tries to kind of, you know, understand them and understand those trajectories against kind of broader uh, emergence of kind of a Muslim mass politics in this part of the world.
1: This all sounds excellent, and I look forward to reading your work, and you might be interested. uh, I had a conversation with uh, Alex Jabari about his book, Persian Modernity, which is also a cultural history of Persian language and literature between South Asia and Iran. Um, so, I'm really excited f- to see how your project uh, unfolds. And best of luck with that. And uh, thank you so much for writing and talking about the book today, Rashad. I really enjoyed this conversation.
0: Thanks very much, David. Thank you.
1: And thank you for uh, the listeners for tuning in to today's episode, in which we explored Hajj across empires, pilgrimage, and political culture after the Mughals between 1739 to 1857 published by Cambridge University Press in 2024 by Rashad Chaudhry. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episodes of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.